Hey, y'all. You ever heard of an amazing young woman by the name of Zinzi Smith? Well, I have. And her and I had just an amazing conversation on Beyonce's internet. I will have you know that 20-year-old Zinzi Smith has her own black woman-owned business for an entire year now teaching spin classes. And let me tell you, she's enthusiastic. She wants the world to know that she's ready to help you shed them pounds from Thanksgiving and Christmas and help you keep up with that New Year's resolution that all of us middle-aged people like to make while we're still making them. So I, for one, am going to try and take one of her classes, just $15 for an online class with Zinzi Smith. She also teaches in person in studios in Brooklyn and in Queens and NYC. And all around, I got to tell you, I am just in awe of her. So you can reach out to her on Spin With Zin. That's Spin With Z-I-N on TikTok and on Instagram. And let her know that you heard it here on Black Fluid Poets Podcast. And you're trying to shed them pounds and keep up that New Year's resolution. You feel me? So give her a shout out. Let me know how it went. Hey, y'all. Have you ever heard of Old Gods of Appalachia? Well, if you haven't, you have now. Let me tell you. This is a horror anthology podcast, and it is absolutely amazing. They have characters. They have actors. They have different people doing voiceovers. It is so ridiculously dope. Y'all got to check this out. Um... I'm, I'm like, I'm enthralled. I'm, I I can't stop listening to it. This shit is crazy. And I got to tell you, all the actors are, they're straight, they're queer, they're black, they're of color, they're male, they're female, they're they, thems, they, thems. They just, this thing is so diverse, man. And, and there's, there's actually some poets involved with this that I actually admire. So this is a big deal. Y'all got to check out Old Gods of Appalachia wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your friend, Black Fluid Poet, a.k.a. John S. Blake, coming to you live from this abode of books during this pandemic paradise where the quarantine just ain't cute no more. It is 2 a.m. Albuquerque time, and I am stealing some solitude. I often wonder if most nocturnal people feel the way I do about this. You know, like, we want our alone time, but don't want to be made to feel guilty about it. You know, so rather than having to turn down invitations out, or to hang, or for anything, phone time social media, while everybody else is asleep, we get up. I purposely went to sleep tonight around 7 p.m., took a nap, woke up around 11.30, and I just wanted to spend the night just secure in my own skin, you know, not having to worry about if I'm missing out on anything. During the day, I get that a lot. I'll be in the middle of doing some work. And in the back of my mind, I'm, I'm, I'm wishing someone will call or text or distract me. But at night, I, you know, it's just not an option. 
you know, most people I know are out cold. So I feel a little more confident in my own skin by myself. Because during the day, if nobody calls or texts me, there comes a little bit of loneliness. But at night, I can always just say, well, they're sleeping. <laughs> How's that for battling insecurities? Pow, 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 pow. Speaking of being alone, I've had a lot of thoughts about Deputy Clyde Kerr III. My heart goes out to his family. He is one of the D.C. officers who took his life shortly after January 6th. On January 29th, he put out this, this YouTube video. It's about 17 minutes long. And there were three things that he repeated over and over you know, it wasn't like a planned out speech. He just, he let it flow, you know. And there were three things he kept saying over and over. One was how corrupt the system of policing is. And he spoke about his experiences of being in the military and being in the police department. The second, he talked about the the irony about mental health, how officers are probably the number one candidate, the poster children for people who need mental health. And ironically, they're also ridiculed for seeking it. And the third thing he said, and he said it more than the others, life matters. And the degree of twistedness isn't lost on me. How he repeated like a mantra, life matters. Life matters. And then shortly after making that video, he took his own life. I often wonder if and I didn't have to with, with Deputy Kerr, but I wonder with a lot of black officers if they feel almost biracial, if they feel like they constantly have to pick between the skin they're in and the uniform they put on. Clyde Kerr would say, yes, absolutely. He's not getting as much media coverage as the white officer who died during the insurrection. He probably should. But he brings up the flaws in the system that no one really wants to talk about who's in power to do anything about it. I can't imagine what it felt like for him day in and day out to see the horrors around Washington, D.C., to see the worst of the worst. And he repeated that as well. He said, we see the lowest rung of humanity. The desperate, the destitute, the angry, the homicidal, the suicidal, 
day in and day out. He talked about, you know, having to go to the scene of gunshot victims on an average of three times a day. And that alone has to do something to the psyche. He was a five-year veteran of the police force. And he was also a veteran who guarded a U.S. embassy overseas. He's, I mean, this guy, he's been in service to this country for so long. And the media hasn't really delved into his story in any significant way. Because, you know, I, I, I see it as a, a capitalist society thing, you know. A worker who quits, you know, is, is, uh, is ridiculed, you know, is put in a negative light. Someone who doesn't consistently allow, you know, corporations to exploit their, their labor. Someone who says, I've had enough. And then taking your own life, well, you know, that is frowned upon in this establishment. <laughs> and then before leaving, through his experience, to expose, not that we didn't already know, but to really shed a shameful light on aspects of policing in this country that truly need to be worked on. I wonder how I wonder how much of a spit in the face it must have been for him to know that Kyle Rittenhouse jumped bail or that he even received bail or how you know the woman who was directing insurrectionists with a bullhorn through a broken window to help them try to kidnap politicians how after her arrest she was released on her own recognizance and then while out and on probation waiting for trial she made a request to the judge that she could keep her vacation plans to Mexico and the judge granted it I'm trying to wrap that one around my head I mean I mean, I have heard some caucasity. But how you going to storm and plot a coup in the Capitol building? Get arrested by the FBI. Then got the absolute caucasity to walk in the courtroom and ask to be allowed to go to Mexico for vacation. Because you don't feel like changing your plans. Or the guy who was wearing the horns and the Houston Texans face makeup. <laughs> he literally looked like the logo for the Houston Texans. That's all I kept thinking about every time his picture came up. But, you know, he gets arrested. He was glorifying the idea of, you know, stomping out some Democrats while he was in the Capitol building. He gets arrested, and don't you know, his mama went to the court to plead for him to get organic food. Cha. And then, I mean, to top it all off, <laughs> he volunteers to testify against Trump at the federal hearing. I was through.
I was like, these people. My man had three weeks of the experience of jail. And he was ready to sing like a canary. I said, ain't that about a bitch? A month earlier, he was plotting to take people out. And there he was doing anything he could to get out. <laughs> Clyde Kerr. You know, I watching his video, I knew that man needed a therapist. Like, his ramblings, the word salad, he couldn't get a complete thought out in a lot of... Um, a lot of his lexicon was was more stutter and stir than than a direct idea that was worded well. He brought up so many different things in two sentences. He had a lot. He just had a lot to give a therapist to navigate through. I mean, I, there's also another aspect to all of this that I, I can't help but notice. It's definitely toxic masculinity. I, I just... I'm so done with men being raised to be so hard. I'm done with men being praised for aggression. Today was the Super Bowl, and I had narrow one urge to see it. Like, I'm so done. I am so done. I can't be a part of it anymore you know toxic masculinity misogyny they destroyed my life i was on a very beautiful enjoyable peaceful path in my life if it were not for the toxic masculinity that i was living with and in denial of i'd be in a whole different place in this world I mean, I'm not ungrateful that I'm aware of it. I just wish I never had it. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a pitying thought. You know, I just wish it never existed. I'm sure I'm not the only one. But I always, my heart always goes out to people who don't see it. Because I, too, was a person that didn't see it until it was too late. And then when I did see it, I saw the damage. And then I... It took me, took me years to forgive myself for all the people I hurt. I am trying to find a path in this world that I could live with where there is some joy while simultaneously knowing so much darkness that exists in my own country. Like seeing the GOP move uh, strategically, concisely away from democracy 
because there's just too many people of too many races and religions and cultures and ethnicities all in the democratic bowl. And the GOP can't maintain white supremacy and democracy at the same time. So one of them's got to go. Guess what they picked? And though they won't admit it, and though some of them may not see it, the elephant is pink, dog. It's right over the dining room table. You can't move this tail anymore to pass the sugar. I mean, the elephant is in the room. And I think about the irony of Officer Eugene Goodman. I mean, wasn't that a... There was something so trope about Eugene Goodman. And it's not an insult. What the man did was was valiant. It was brave. It was courageous. I don't know if I would have did it. And I'm being real with y'all. If I'd have saw that horde of angry white men coming at me and all I had was a stick, y'all, all he had was a big stick. That's all he had. There was hundreds of men coming up them stairs like the angriest parade you have ever seen. And Eugene Goodman had the wherewithal to look down a hallway, notice how the Senate wasn't secured, swing and push at this red snake, this long slithering beast and you know decorated with red caps like scales he had the wherewithal to force them to come towards him up another flight of stairs y'all for real though i might have just given him directions i look i'm <laughs> i'm just <laughs> i ain't gonna lie that that shit took a level of courage that I mean, you don't know if you have it until you're in that moment. And maybe, maybe I would have done the same thing, believing it would be inevitable anyway. But, dog, that it was just valiant. But getting back to what I meant about a trope. If you go back throughout American history, and by the way, happy Black History Month. You go throughout... American history, there are certain people of the black race, of African descent, who were afforded this privilege of being included in the history books. And it is always the well-assimilated black person. From particular poems by Phyllis Wheatley, where she talked about being a savage and saved from a savage world and brought to Christianity in the States, to Crispus addicts, fighting and initiating the American Revolution, and how nobly he died, firing the first shot, to John Henry, who used his own body and sacrificed his life 
to fight the oncoming technology, man versus the machine. He had something to prove how hard he fought. He sacrificed his life to keep his place working on the railroad. And as a kid, oh man, as a kid, I was, I was so proud. Y'all, you got no idea. I was so proud. John Henry, when I was a kid, I loved that story over and over and over again. Because not only could he beat any white man, but he could even beat the white man's inventions. Like, he was just unstoppable. Like, John Henry was just a monster. You know what I'm saying? And it used to annoy me that pictures of him were always drawn differently. Sometimes he was like eight feet tall. Other times he was shorter, but he was, you know, stronger. He was all different complexions, but always relatively dark. And how all of these black people just keep giving and giving and giving and giving to a system that never seems to reciprocate. And as I got older, you know, I even thought about King. You know, when I, by the time I was eight, I remember when I was seven years old, my mother made me watch Roots. And when I say made me, I mean made me. And I was too young to understand what the hell was going on throughout most of that series. But I sure remember every night my mother making me and my siblings sit down and watch this movie. And it took a, I think it took a week. It might have been longer. I don't remember. But I remember that this was some serious shit. And until the O.J. Simpson verdict, it was the most watched thing in the history of television. And it was my first time getting an idea of white people and black people in America and how they just didn't seem to get along ever since the beginning. I mean, at seven, you know, you make you make connections where you can. You, you draw conclusions as best you can at that age, right? But I remember as we were watching it, my white mother and at the time, my black stepfather were sitting on the couch, hand in hand, my mother leaning on my stepfather, watching this movie. And I didn't understand how the white people and the black people on the show didn't get along, but why my white mother and my black stepfather could. I didn't get it. And then the whole, like, you know, Kunta Kinte getting whipped until he confessed his name was Toby, you know, until he gave in to his name change. As, as a boy, that was really confusing because, you know, who cares what the hell his name is? Why is that so important? And little by little, my mother kept explaining it to me. And I thought I was upsetting my mother because every time I asked about something, throughout the series, throughout the week, she grew angrier and angrier and angrier. And my stepfather didn't react at all. Like he was just kind of relaxed, just watching the show. But I remember it upset my mother. And in hindsight, my mother's anger is about how she was made to choose to take my black father as her husband 
and die a social death or live as a white woman. See, because, you know, today, you know, the new intellectuals are out and the new discourse is out. And, you know, according to the new discourse, I'm supposed to identify as a uh, mixed black person. I'm supposed to identify as having one black parent. And God bless this new discourse. You know, it, there's room for it now. <laughs> and, and they don't know how lucky they are to have this room for, for more specified identities. And I get it. And a lot of young people are, you know, coming onto my social media and they want to correct me and they want to let me know that I'm white appearing. I'm not just black. I'm black and white appearing or I'm mixed race black. And I'm like, Negro, I'm black. I don't know what the fuck you's talking about. Because my generation, there wasn't a middle ground. You know, when I was growing up, I remember, you know, telling people that I was half black, half white. And it didn't matter if it was a black person or a white person. They would ask me, well, which one do you feel more like? And the wrong answer could have got you hurt. I always had to pick. Always. My whole childhood, my whole adolescence, I always had to pick. And black people, especially in my family, were really quick to remind me that I was black. I may have light skin, but trust me, and they always said, you know, if slavery was here, you'd be working. Now, you'd be working in the house, but you'd be working, nonetheless, for free. And now, if I say I'm black, all these young people are like, they're like, you're not black. <laughs> you're not black, you're white. And I'm like, bro, listen here. <laughs> I've been through too much for this label. I ain't going to let y'all take it away from me on some critical race theory techn technicality. Don't get it twisted. I'm going to fight for my label. I curse you and your mama out. I don't care. This, I'm black. Took me 50 years to get to this motherfucker. And I'll be damned I'm going to give it up because of a new article that just hit Sociology Today magazine. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're going to have to keep your resentment and I'm going to keep my label. Thank you anyway. Have a good day. But man, this is, there's just been so much, you know. Here it is. February 8th. It's been, what, 32 days since the insurrection? And I'm still in shock, y'all. Like, I don't feel good or bad about the new administration yet. I haven't... I haven't come to any... <sighs> refreshing feelings. You know, I'm still... I'm still in trauma from the Trump era, y'all. Like, I didn't think... You know, when Trump was elected, I kind of giggled. I was like, oh, this is going to suck. 
And it took me a day or two before I was finally really pissed off and depressed about it. But I always said to myself, you know, we're going to be all right. It's just four years in and out. But I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know it was going to get as crazy as it did. I mean, in 2016, could anybody have predicted an insurrection? I mean, for real, for real. So here I am, 32 days since the insurrection. And I'm trying to wrap my head around being black in America. I'm trying to wrap my head around how I truly feel about police officers as opposed to policing. It's just not as simple as all cops are bastards. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. At the end of the day, these people have partners, they have children, they pay the taxes. Some of them have wanted to be police officers just like I was when I was a kid, man. I, I can remember being six years old and all I wanted to be in this world was a cop because I really believed that officers were about doing the right thing. Now, I've gotten older and I've gotten a little more mature. And I've learned that the law has nothing to do with justice. And officers are paid to enforce the law, not to enforce justice. I don't think it's any coincidence that a lot of cadets for policing are turned away if they have a college degree. I don't think it's any coincidence that police officers are ridiculed for trying to seek therapy. Because any emotionally, spiritually healthy individual that has done four years on a university campus knows good and goddamn well there is something wrong with policing. And God forbid a police officer paused to think before acting. And ain't that also America? Y'all, I just, I want to see something before I die. I just want to see safety before I die. And capitalism is killing everybody, man. It's like, I, I saw a TikTok tonight of... A young person who's been off a very necessary medication of theirs for three months because their insurance refused to pay for it. And when they called the pharmacy to find out the cost, they put it on speakerphone. This motherfucking medication for one month was over dollars but 30 days of medication y'all let me explain something to you about that at the height of my drug addiction i had a 200 dollars a day habit in order to reach five thousand dollars in heroin and cocaine it would take me an entire month to go through $5,000 worth of narcotics. 
Y'all, this pharmacy got the nerve to charge $5,000 for somebody to take a pill a day. <sighs> Stay tuned for part two. Hey, y'all. Your fam, Black Fluid Poet. Check it out. If you love this podcast, I want to thank you for favoriting the podcast because it means the world to me. However, the way I can get more advertisers is to have more subscribers. If advertisers um, see that um, I have a lot of subscribers, they will be more willing to give me opportunities to advertise for them. So in order for me to get these ads, I need to get to a decent amount of subscribers. So you come here to anchor.fm and you go to support and you can pick 99 cents, 4.99 or 9.99. Please feel free to pick 99 cents. I, I, I am overjoyed at anyone who wants to support my dream of getting this podcast taking off. You know what I'm saying? So please just consider it. If I could get a thousand subscribers, I could get out of this poverty thing. You know what I'm saying? Because, yo, the struggle is real. Y'all take care. Hey, y'all. Black Fluid Poet here again. And I wanted to touch on some other things. Um, You know, with the state of the country the way it is, I feel like this story from my childhood has a lot to do with everything that we're facing even today. Now, mind you, this story is from my seventh year of life. So we're talking 43 years ago. But it reminds you of everything happening right now. It's going to have a lot to do with gender and race and class and sickness. So this is an interesting story time. So, uh, Some of it's funny, some of it's disgusting, (laughs) some of it's sad, and some of it's amazing. So, y'all already know I grew up in the projects. My mother at the time that I was seven was a single white mom, and with these mixed kids, and she, uh, (laughs) she was stressed out, she was drinking, she was using drugs. She was working nights at an after-hours joint she co-owned. And she worked during the day, off the books, collected welfare, and was going to school to become a nurse's aide. Now that is one busy woman. So my mother would come home from work, say, 7, 8 o'clock in the morning, and get me ready for school. And sometimes I would wake up on my own, and I would go out into the living room, and I would see her there, you know, waiting for the coffee to brew smoking a cigarette, face full of this runny makeup, you know, because she just got in the door. And this one particular day didn't start out the same. This one particular day I woke up and I remember everything was red. Just red, like bright, horrible, loud red. And it was a siren in my ear, in my head, felt like someone was hitting me with a hammer. And I screamed, screamed bloody murder. And my mother, you know, as big as she was, you know, she was, my mom has always been over 300 pounds. 
and she came thumping into the back room. She said, what the hell are you screaming about? And I said, Mom, it hurts. It hurts so bad. And I was holding my head. And every time I moved, there would be this stinging pain. So my mother never seeing me this way, you know, she usually minimizes, oh, it's probably just a headache, but I had never screamed like that because I knew making a loud noise like that would trigger my mother into an anger fit. And I just couldn't control it. I was just overwhelmed. And uh, so my mother just grabs me and we leave and she takes a cab straight to the hospital emergency room and I go in and I'm screaming bloody murder and my mother is not reacting to my screaming. And I don't know if it was because she was overtired or she, you know, maybe she didn't have the energy or maybe she just, you know, on a, on a molecular level, she just knew that I must have been in some serious pain to be making that much noise because you weren't allowed to make a lot of noise in my house. You weren't allowed to laugh too much. You weren't allowed to cry too loud. Nothing. And you damn sure weren't allowed to show any anger or yell. So my mom rushes me in. There's something wrong with my son. There's something wrong with my son. And I'm screaming bloody murder. And it just, it, I swear, it was like a drill. A, a handheld drill bit was just slowly grinding through my skull. <sighs> so they take me inside and... This doctor looks in my ear, um, nothing, looks in my other ear. And when he tries to look in my other ear, it hurts so bad. And he walks over and leans up to, leans into my mother and whispers something to her. And my mother goes, oh my God. And I, w I didn't know what the, what's the, oh my God, what's the matter with me? Like, I really thought I was going to die. And the doctor kept trying to spray water into my ear and the water just made it hurt more. And then they finally gave me something strong for pain. And I just remember being really dizzy. And my mother leaned over to me and she said, John, there's a roach in your ear. And the doctors are going to have to go in there and take it out. And I remember crying, no longer in pain, but just crying because I felt so gross. A roach in my ear. A roach, while I was sleeping, crawled onto my mattress and into my ear, got stuck and was trying to writhe its way out and couldn't. So... The whole time, uh, there was this one doctor who used to treat my asthma in the emergency room. And she came up just to see how I was doing. And all the other doctors who were men, who were white, couldn't stand her. She was a, a white woman. And every time she suggested something, they all just, you know, waved her off or dismissed her. Um, told my mother not to listen to her. And, you know... Looking at this on an intersectional level, here's a kid from the projects with poverty in his ear. Like, this shit doesn't happen to wealthy people. You know what I'm saying? And here's these well-educated white doctors who have no idea how to get this poverty out of this child's ear. No kidding. Why would they? And this one woman 
who, let's face it, in 1977 was quite oppressed. I can't imagine the work she had to go through to be a doctor in the 70s. All of the misogyny she had to navigate. But anyway, <clears throat> she had a splendid idea. And my mother said, I want to go with her idea. So they knocked me out. They took me into surgery. And the roach was removed in surgery. Afterwards, that same doctor uh, came to my bedside. And I thanked her. The pain was gone. And I gave her a hug. And she said, are, you know, is, are roaches a big problem where you live? And I said, yeah, they're everywhere. And um, my mother just wept. She's like, my house is spotless. I don't know what to do. And the doctor said to her, I think the roaches are causing his asthma. And my mother said, what? Because up until that point, there had been plenty of doctors who said it was the humidity that I needed to live in a dry place like Arizona. They said it was the cold. They said it was food allergies that was causing my asthma. I was missing an average of eight months of every school year. Well, up until that point, it was kindergarten, first grade, and second grade. But I was missing a lot of school. And when my mother looked at this doctor and the doctor started to try and explain it and I couldn't you know understand all of that but basically whatever kind of dander or feces or whatever it was that the roaches leave behind was causing my wheezing which is which was her you know hypothesis there was no proof there was really nothing to back it up but um <clears throat> the doctor just seemed so confident and my mother must have felt so desperate. I don't remember much. I remember I stayed in the hospital overnight. And then sometime that morning, my mother came to pick me up. And when we went outside, we got outside and we were headed home, so I thought. And... A friend of my mother's, I used to call her Aunt Georgia, but this woman named Georgia who lived in New Jersey was outside as well with her quote-unquote friend, Ida. And um, they were there to pick us up. And I said, Mom, what's this? She said, we're going to our new home. In one night, my mother had packed up what was worth keeping and put it in the trunk of Aunt Georgia's car, which basically was just some clothes. She left all the furniture, any risks of roaches anywhere. She left everything behind. Washer. I remember we had all of our furniture, television, everything. She left it all. And we moved. She had sold her after-hours joint. I mean, all of this in one night. Sold her after hours joint, took our clothes, left everything in the apartment, and we moved to a house in the suburbs in Inglewood, New Jersey. And I had never been, except for like my Aunt Roseanne's house in Staten Island. I had been to her house a couple of times. 
uh, a woman that was a friend of my mother's named Marguerite. We had been to her house a couple of times. But I remember being in this house, and the house looked like a mansion to me. It wasn't, you know, in hindsight, but it was just so big, you know. And uh, <clears throat> that night, I remember it was around summer or spring, and Georgia had this big front yard. And I remember running around in the front yard with a couple of kids from the neighborhood and chasing lightning bugs. They scared the shit out of me. I'd never seen these things before, these bugs that literally lit up. And I remember I was like a little bit traumatized, but kids were like, oh no, they're so safe here, come on. And we were catching fireflies and running around and my mother wept. My mother watched me play with these kids and she just started crying. And I didn't realize it then, but I realized it years and years later. I asked my mother, why were you crying that night? I remember you crying a lot while I was running around and playing. She said, John, you don't understand. You couldn't run down a flight of stairs without getting an asthma attack. She said, that doctor was right. As soon as I moved you out of the projects and into the suburbs, you were breathing. You were breathing well. You were running around and playing. And I even remember I joined a swim team that summer. <clears throat> even got a couple of first place ribbons. You know, as much damage that my mother, as my mother has caused, you know, her time in prison, her violent behavior, you know, an untreated bipolar disorder, her alcoholism, her drug use, her unpredictability. That woman, on the word of a doctor, for the sake of her child, sold her business, left everything behind, and moved out to the suburbs in 24 hours just so I could breathe. Just so I could breathe. I'm pausing because it just... That's, that's the kind of love I've always wanted to give someone. That's the kind of love I think everybody dreams of in their spouse, in a lover, hell, in any family. Like, would you give up everything so they could breathe? Just so they could breathe. My mother saved my life. Or more than one occasion, but especially that time. She saved my life. She gave up her whole identity. Became a nurse's aide in New Jersey. Basically, as my mother would describe it, she just lifted old people from one place to another all day. <laughs> and I remember that was the beginning of a new life. Inglewood was a rough neighborhood, don't get me wrong. But it was a rough neighborhood with houses and no roaches. 
And sometimes I wish she was alive for me to thank her. Because that was a big fucking deal. And by the time I realized all the effort that she put in, she was already gone. I miss her. I miss her in all her toxicity. <laughs> I just wanted to share that story with y'all. You have a good night.